Game Cool Books, Episode 51. He Hasn't Got Asahater. Chapter 13. That strange word, Asahater, does a lot to begin drawing together the threads of what has gone before and to foreshadow the end game of the subtle knife and of the trilogy, his dark materials. Chapter 13 opens with a pagan ceremony and it closes with a type of nativity scene. The witch's spell is lit by moon and starlight. Lyra's attendant, stirring herbs in a pot, like one of the weird sisters. Seraphina's song takes center stage. Printed, italic, the first such extended poetry since the opening epigraph from Milton. Now, readers tend to skip poetry when they come across it in fantasy stories. You see this famously in Tolkien, where poetry pops up pretty frequently. But we would do better to imitate Will here, who listens closely and indeed participates in the poem. If at all possible, we should read the poem out loud or hear it read aloud. So I'll do that now. Little knife, they tore your iron out of Mother Earth's entrails, built a fire and boiled the ore, made it weep and bleed and flood, hammered it and tempered it, plunging it in icy water, heating it inside the forge till your blade was blood-red scorching. Then they made you wound the water once again and yet again, till the steam was boiling fog and the water cried for mercy. And when you sliced a single shade into thirty thousand shadows, then they knew that you were ready. Then they called you Subtle One. But, little knife, what have you done? Unlocked bloodgates, left them wide. Little knife, your mother calls you from the entrails of the earth, from her deepest mines and caverns, from her secret iron womb. Listen. Blood, obey me, turn around, be a lake and not a river. When you reach the open air, stop and build a clotted wall, build it firm to hold the flood back. Blood, your sky is the skull dome, your sun is the open eye, your wind the breath inside the lungs, blood, your world is bounded, stay there. Oak bark, spider silk, Ground moss, salt weed, grip close, bind tight, hold fast, close up, bar the door, lock the gate, stiffen the blood wall, dry the gore flood. Next, after we've heard the poem, we'd like to get straight what's happening in it. Before moving into how it happens, in terms of form and poetic devices. The song addresses first the knife, then Will's blood, and the ingredients of the binding. Its purpose is clearly for healing. The root meaning of enchantment is song. And as with so much in Pullman, there's the material component here too. Lyra's participation consists in stirring up the decoction. And Will, of course, is the subject of the song. What strikes me in the imagery is how it's about making, on the one hand, nature on the other, which are two great concerns in all Pullman's work. As for the particularly magical qualities, we don't have a whole lot to compare this spell to in the series so far. We've seen invisibility spells, and we've seen an opening spell when the cages in Bolvanger spring open at the touch of snow and a word from Serafina Pecola's demon, Kaisa. So this is, in a way, the opposite of that. We'll see another instance of magic uh, more dramatically in the uh, newer sequels, The Book of Dust. There's the classic trope here, though, of poising 
human art and nature. Um, in this song, and in most theoretical magic, I suppose, they are balanced. First we get the knife, which is artificial. We're shown how it's taken from nature. And then we see Will's blood compared to various kinds of human artifice. Finally, we get the combination of art and nature in the binding agents, which are supposed to heal at the point of conflict, the wound itself. In terms of form, poetic elements, we have the personification, the address to the knife, to the blood, to the oak bark, and so on. We have alliteration and assonance. So, um, the kind of half rhyme that you get in weep and bleed and flood, and then the kind of repetition of wound and water, or once again and yet again. There's um, kind of kennings where a poetic term is used instead of the thing itself. For example, the skull dome or the blood wall or the gore flood. And in English, we tend to hyphenate those, but in a more Germanic language, you might see them as just one word. Um, then, of course, the song includes the ululation of the witches, the stamping and clapping, those more rhythmic bodily elements that the poem on the page simply can't capture. We have to contribute them. And I know in my reading I didn't do a very good job. But the intensity of feeling in the story, anyway, was to imagine it such that Will nearly flinched. He feels or imagines his atoms responding. And we'll see a parallel moment in the reforging of the knife, which takes place later. The spell's power is tested, proved, by the bubbling decoction being spread first on a freshly split alder sapling, and then in a chilling display of the witch's strength, on a squirming hair held in merciless hands, Pan becomes a hare in sympathy. But how different this is from the experiments with intercision. The wound is healed at once. It's closed by those same merciless fingers. The hare maintains its nature. It becomes suddenly aware. And, like an arrow, speeds away whole again. So we see in that, although it's prose, some poetic sort of metaphor going on, or I guess it's a simile, a fusion of the body of the hare and the weapon, the arrow. Again, that nature and art being played off each other. And that is the spell working. Again, we hear the phrase, not flinching, as Will gets the bandage applied and tied with a bit of silk. The scene closes with the children bedding down in the leaves, huddling close together for warmth. And this is the first of three sleeping scenes, actually, in this chapter that provided a kind of structure. Lyra's task to guide Will to his father is one she's known about since chapter four, and she finally sets herself to doing it here, only warily using the alethiometer. Its only instructions are to keep going, to go to the mountains around the bay, which they couldn't see from down in the city. And Lyra dawdles looking around at animals, whereas Will goes intently forward. The same sort of contrast we've seen between them before, 
In a dialogue with her demon, of the sort that opened the story to begin with, Lyra and Pan talk about that first turning point in the retiring room. Because Pan is arguing that they'd be reading the alethiometer for Will, not for themselves, and so that it would be okay. But Lyra calls him greedy and nosy. Pan says, that's a change. This is where he refers to their argument about the retiring room. It's an example of the interpretation of events that we see modeled for us by the characters within the story. We see them wonder at the momentous consequences of that one choice to hide, to spy. Would any of this have happened if they hadn't given in to their curiosity? Aside from that question, impossible anyhow for now to answer, there's the more immediate question of who Will's father is. Lyra gets this insight that she voices with some surprise as she's changing, Pan will stop changing. She'd told the uh, able seaman, Jerry, that she didn't want Pan to settle. But now she's as curious about what he will be as he is about who Will's father is. She asks what he thinks he'll be. He says a flea. And uh, she points out that he's just mad that she won't do what he wants, and so he becomes a pig to make her laugh, and then a squirrel, uh, flighty up in the trees. He bounces the question back to Will's father. Whoever he is, he is to be considered in the light of her own father, Lord Asriel. He must be almost as important as him. And that general problem of importance, of knowing when something is or is not important, of knowing that what one is doing is important, uh, is, is, is going to arise a few times in this chapter. Lyra's proof that they know they're doing, uh, looking for dust, must be really important, and so finding Will's father must be even more important than that. Uh, she offers a support for this that the witches have been helping her, so she must be on the right track. And she finally asks about when Pan licked Will in the tower when he was wounded as further evidence that he, too, deep down, must know how important helping Will is. And he explains what she claims to already have known, really all along, uh, that in that moment Will needed a demon, only he didn't have one. And... Uh, this seems to be a, sort of like a moment in the Jane Austen books where the protagonist thinks that she's very clever and insightful and in reading a situation when actually she's missed something important. Um, anyway, that's the way it sort of looks here. And Pan takes the form of a flycatcher, uh, similar to what he took there in the tower to fly through that first window. And here the conversation includes Will himself. They catch up to him. Lyra shows, again, the sort of stubborn compassion that comes out when she talks about Angelica and Paolo's loss of their brother. She wonders what the kids will do now. Back to drifting about, and maybe they'll come after them for the knife, but Will claims it emphatically. Now, that he supposes that it can kill specters. He insists that Lyra, despite her protestations, did trust Angelica, so she's been corrected again in the space of a few lines, and yet she doesn't uh, throw a fit. Uh, the experience has taught her, she says, she won't trust kids the way she used to. She goes back to the experience of Bolvanger, where the demarcation between kids and adults was so clear. And then Two, they were rescued by the witches, suggesting that there's some third quality or some way of moderating those differences beyond the kid-adult dichotomy or the innocence-experience dichotomy which underlies these books. And this third thing the witches represent somehow can intervene in crucial moments. Finally, Will opens up about when he had seen kids like that to have lost his trust in them already. He describes 
one of his mother's bad times, how she would sometimes think things or have to do things that didn't seem to make sense to him. Uh, he's giving the example of touching all the railings or counting all the leaves, and he talks about how he couldn't ask anyone for help. He has no witches to swoop in and save him. Uh, can't tell anyone at school or the police for fear that they'd take his mother away. And her own fear comes out when he's away at school, and it drives her to leave the house not wearing much, and some boys who probably should have been in school find her. He says they tormented her, and he explicitly compares them to the kids at the tower with the cat. She was just different, and they hated her. So he observed this. Now, if we push this parallel just a little bit, behind that hate is a kind of superstitious fear. The kids at the tower said, cats have the devil in them. And a fear of contamination. They say, they bite you and put the devil in you too. Or maybe it's the kids the next day who Lyra finds playing at the water. But anyway, that's their explanation. And maybe that's worth bearing in mind. Here, we get one of the fights that helped prepare Will for his battle on the rooftop of the tower, because he fought the boy who was leading the others and broke his arm the next day at school and got in trouble, had to stop. He had to restrain his own hatred out of obedience to his still greater love for his mother. He stopped fighting because he knew if he fought too much, the school would call home on him and find out what was wrong with her. So Will had to pretend to be sorry. But he knew that they knew that he'd kill them if they ever said anything to anyone else. So he doesn't exactly trust children, although in a way he does uh, trust them not to say anything. So I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Now Lyra pretends uh, not to see his tears. And this is where she makes the connection to Will's idea about why Big Brother Tullio had to count the stones in the wall, that Will thought the specters might come from his world. And seems she's got it right. He says his mom was not mad. She was afraid of things he couldn't see. And she could see the point of the things she was doing. And so he thinks that maybe... This is a way of trying to put the specters off, to get interested in something, to act as if it's really important, then you'll be safe. I think it's not too much of a stretch to uh, apply this to certain hobbies that we might have, say, reading a book really carefully, perhaps. The uh, real things also attacked Will and his mother, of course, like the men who broke into their house. But there was something else there, and so he gives it the name Spectres because he didn't have a name for it in his world. Um, and uh, see some more about this naming problem in a little bit. So he's glad that the alethiometer said his mother's all right, just like he's glad they got rescued by the witches. Again, that thing beyond innocence and experience. The alethiometer is probably a good symbol for it as well. And then we get a little more background of uh, Will recounting for Lyra some of the first things that we learned from the narrator about him. How it was that he knew that he had to find his father for real. Um and how he'd always pretended it growing up, playing games that went on for days, and his imagination rescuing his father from a desert island, and then also in his imagination picturing what it would be like to have his father back home, his mother would get better, and how Will yearned to just go to school and to have parents, yearning for exactly what someone reading the book, probably takes for granted. 
And we as readers in turn are yearning for just those heroic adventures that he and Lyra are on. Again, we're reminded of his mother's refrain that he would take up his father's mantle. And Will, though he doesn't know what it means, uh, finds comfort in it. It sounds important. There's that sense of doing something important again, or having some important goal that you're working towards. And in this moment, something incredibly important is coming about in the course of their talk. The question Lyra asks next brings it up to the surface. She asks about friends. And of course, they're becoming friends. Will says, how could he have friends? And he gives kind of a rough definition of a friend here. It's someone who goes around to one another's houses. It would have been impossible for him to resist because he couldn't have them over to his house. He couldn't trust anyone else with his secret. Although he's forced to trust his enemies with it. Forced to pretend to apologize to them. But he trusts Lyra with it. And I suppose he trusted the piano teacher too. Oh, he would have liked having a friend. But it just wasn't possible. Instead, he had his cat. And that brings us to the man that he killed. Will remains adamant that the man deserved it. And he knows that the men wouldn't have left his mother alone, so he had to do something. He thought maybe the men were part of a gang, that his father was mixed up with some criminal behavior. There's maybe a tenuous link here to those other adventure stories that Pullman uh, dreams up in earlier books, the Sally Lockhart books, and even more closely, the White Mercedes, which is reissued as the Butterfly Tattoo. But the men didn't want money. They wanted some letters, the ones that Will has already given Lyra, actually. But instead of going to the police, because he couldn't expect help from them any more than from the school, he went to that piano teacher. Again, help comes from an even more unexpected corner than from the witches, from piano teacher. So power of, of art comes out again there enchantment, music. We still don't get an explanation of how he knows this piano teacher, but anyway. He also gets help, of course, from the cat. Uh, talks about the moment when Moxie tripped the man, that neither of them saw her there. Just like the narrator emphasized before, that Will didn't mean to kill, but it happened. He reflects that he saw the window in the first place because of another cat. He thought that place was heaven at first because he couldn't see the specters there. The word they use for this is lucky, but they realize that it looks like something deeper is at work here, guiding them and guiding the events, connecting this back to Lyra and Pan's discussion about the retiring room. They bring it up again. What if they'd never hid in the wardrobe in the first place? And we get a beautiful picture of a slant of sunlight. We have to imagine the dust in it that's not mentioned this time. But it's not that much of a stretch um, when you think of all these tiny chances conspiring to bring them together. And there's a kind of wistful speculation that there might be some other world in which these events went a different way. And Lord Azriel was poisoned, but there was another Roger to play with another Lyra forever on the rooftops of another Jordan. And having talked and shared and imagined together, presently they're strong enough to go on. And so time passes as they rest and move trees thin, the land grows rocky. We see the landscape harshening, just like at the end of the Golden Compass, we sort of traced that progress. The alethiometer says, keep going. Our first look at a village untroubled by specters comes shifting the perspective briefly to the villagers 
own world of lemon trees and children playing in the stream and bargaining, their surprise at seeing these children arrive, accompanied by an elegant greyhound. But they're willing to trade food for one of Lyra's coins. Those gold coins Will told her to keep hidden when they were in his world. Those coins that she scratched uh, the name of Tony Makarios's demon onto. And the witches are there nearby, though they stay out of sight. Of course, the dust and whatever it is that's guiding them is there too, just out of sight. Us reading, the narrator writing. But they're on to more practical things. They purchase some flasks of goatskin for water, a clean shirt for Will so he can get rid of his bloody one, washes in the stream just like he'd swum back at the beach in the town. And they go on in the shadow of rocks as the heat rises up through the soles of their shoes. Slower and slower they go until they decide to rest down in the valley. There's some beautiful evocations of nature here, of the flowers, the dwarf rhododendrons, heavy with bees and the grass, thick with wildflowers. And this all contributes to Will's internal mood is kind of daze of strangeness. This mood where he can't really sleep and can't really stay awake that we saw before. And it's all, of course, related to the fact that his wound is still bleeding. And he doesn't bother questioning, but he can see that Serafina can see that the spell hasn't worked. And there's a really lovely little scene between him and Pantalaimon. Uh, this is the second of the uh, sleeping scenes that sort of structure this chapter. There's a curiously formal, full naming here. It calls him Pantalaimon, and the narrator calls him Lyra's demon. In a way, they're getting to know each other, and that involves, I suppose, seeing one another whole. The vulnerability that Will has already bared, telling about his mother, is accentuated and extended now to himself in the present, because he bears his own fear to Pantalaimon, his fear of dying, that thing that his other enemy the man who broke in, in a way, has taught him about profoundly. Though he isn't sorry for what he did. And Pan offers him comfort here. It says that the witches won't let you die. And if the witches are sort of like that thing that intervenes in the story, to make it happen, to save characters, to rescue, um, then there's something pretty profound there about that thing, not letting someone die. Of course, the witch's spell didn't work, so maybe Pantalaimon is only bluffing a bit here, saying this to comfort Will. But what is true is that Lyra doesn't think that Will is frightened, that she thinks he is the bravest person she's ever met, even braver than Yorick. And this gives Will strength that he'll try not to seem frightened. He'll act as if he was brave. But he, in turn, thinks of Lyra as braver than himself. He says she's the best friend that he's ever had, and she thinks the same about him, Pantalaimon says. So there's a great deal that's reciprocated here. And as Will finally settles down and goes to sleep, the narrator lets us know that Lyra's eyes are wide open in the dark, and her heart is beating hard. And that's all he says about it.
We're left to draw our own conclusions. It's still night when they get up. Will's herding. Lyra's toasting bread for them. And there's some birds roasting. Uh, for Will, there's some medicine that's like sage leaves, which makes us think of Lee's homeland, sage lands of Texas. And indeed, they've spotted a balloon over the sea with two men in it and a storm gathering behind them. Lyra immediately thinks of Lee Scoresby and thinks that they'll be able to fly once he's there and that she'll be able to talk to him again because she never got to say goodbye. Now we might wonder why they aren't flying if they have the witches there, but for whatever reason the witches seem not to be able to fly with them anymore the way they did back at Bolvanger. There's also the mention of Yutaka Mayanin's presence among them, the reminder of who she is, that she's the witch who loved Stanislaus Grumman, and she thinks of him, of course, when she hears the name Lee Scoresby mentioned. That's what Lee was up to, looking for Dr. Grumman. And her presence is there to prevent her from killing Dr. Grumman, if he is found. The narrator remarks that Serafina might have noticed, but something else happened. It's another of these seemingly small chances. It's not even a decision exactly in this case, but it's the consequence of other decisions and other small chances accumulating here. The cry of a demon, more cries, the witches leaping into action to save Rudoscati. There's a fight. Uh, cliff gassed or something similar flapping to the ground and lunging at Lyra with malice in its dying body, but wills there to behead it before the witches can get a shot off. The view of the battle is very reminiscent of the confused combat during their escape from Bullvanger, or of the ambush by cliff gassed, which separated Lyra from Lee Scoresby and the others back at Svalbard. The skirling and chittering of the ghasts makes them very like the ghosts in the classical underworld. They come from neither Lyra's homeworld and the witches or from this world of Chittagatsi, we're told, but they come from that place where Azrael has mounted his rebellion. Or anyhow, one of the places that Rudoscati passed through on her way there. In that world, Rudoscati came upon them breeding like flies, she says, with disgust, spitting over the dead body. But the fight's over. So she turns to these newcomers and asks who they are. The effect of her attention upon them is something like when Lord Asriel trains his attention on Lyra or when Mrs. Coulter did. It elicits a responding thrill in the nerves of those around her and a tingle of intensity. Will feels it, but like he did with the spell, he controls his reaction. Lyra does the same. It's one of her great strengths, of course. Will cleans the knife. And I think it's noteworthy that this is the first time he's actually used the knife to kill anything. He desperately wants to kill the specters that are afflicting his mother, it seems. That might be the plan that's in his mind somewhere, though it's never mentioned outright. We plunge then into Rudiscati's story of learning, uh, her description of the old things changing or dying. She eats like an animal, her journey and her description of Lord Asriel's castle and the stores gathered there, it reminds us of the way that Asriel was calling, calling things to him in the north, even though he didn't even know that one of the things he was calling there was his own daughter. There's something even more uncanny going on than that calling, perhaps, as Rudiscotti theorizes that Asriel must have been preparing this for eons, since before the witches were even born. 
she thinks he must command time, making it run fast or slow according to his will. Now, this is an idea that's never really returned to, but it is an open question of what Azrael is doing to uh, gather these warriors and fighting spirits and creatures with poison spurs. We'll hear more about them in the next book. He brought other world's witches to him. And that other world might be ours because she says they're men witches. Although, I guess we haven't got much evidence of men witches who fly. As for Azrael himself, she finds him at the center of all these circles of activity, directing them all. She finds him by making herself invisible and going there. And what happens when she does find him getting ready for bed does not need to be said, because the witches all knew it, and neither Will nor Lyra dreamed of it. And the reader could easily read right over that, if it's a reader who doesn't know what happened next either. As for Azriel's challenge to the authority, he laughs when he hears that they speak of it in uh, Siberia. But she decides that they must join him and is only waiting to come and talk it over with the other witches before she is able to pledge their service to him. He shows her what well, she already seems prepared to know, that to rebel in this cause is right and just. And the word rebellion makes me think of uh, Ivan Karamazov's argument, which includes the Grand Inquisitor and the title of one of the chapters is Rebellion in the Brothers Karamazov, where the case against God is made in powerful and bitter terms. Rudiscati talks about Volvanger and similar mutilations and of witches being burned in some worlds, certainly that could be one of ours, of cruelties committed in the name of the authority, destroying joys and truthfulness of life. These are very similar to her arguments from the Council of the Witches, only now they're multiplied across innumerable other worlds. There are some new things there, I think, though. Uh, dropping the names of a few other witch queens she must consult. And something else really new is this great wind, another random-seeming chance, that drives her to seek refuge on a clifftop, where again she makes herself invisible and listens to the voices she can hear, one is the oldest of all the cliff ghasts. And so, very like the authority, but also very like Azrael, uh, as the leader the others come to. She tells the story with gusto, that this cliff ghast has a memory that goes way, way back, that it knows that the greatest battle is coming, and that they will feast, that it knows about the other worlds. And not just that, it knows Azrael's army is greater and better led than the one that came before, when the angels rebelled before. That though he's outnumbered, it would be a close fight, and that he would win because he is passionate and daring and believes his cause is just. But for one thing, he hasn't got as a heter. And they all laugh. Again, the eldest cliff guests' laughter echoes Lord Asriel's laughter. And the howling of the wind makes it hard for her to hear, but a little cliff guest asks, why doesn't Asriel call him? And it's as if they already know about Azrael's power of calling. But the elder says that he knows no more of Asaheter than you. And that that is the joke. 
So it doesn't exactly explain the joke. It certainly doesn't explain what Asahether is, but insists that it is a joke. And again, the uh, attempt to learn more here, to press on the curiosity and the shock of, of hearing this prophecy or maybe it's just the sheer amount of time that she's held the spell causes Rudiscati to become visible so that she has to flee. She goes back through the invisible gateway and then the battle ensues that we just saw. Her argument is that whoever Asahatar is, Asriel needs the witches to join in the war. This is just confirming her determination that they should help him. Serafina pauses to look at Will as if asking his permission for something, but he doesn't respond. And so she says that their task is to help Lyra and hers is to guide Will. In that moment, it's as if he had a chance, though he didn't quite see it, to pledge his support and uh, thus free the witches to go and fight on the side of Lord Asriel. But he's uh, sort of out of commission the rest of this chapter. He lays down and Lyra can only sort of listen sleepily to the rest of the conversation. She hears about Asriel's leadership. What that consists in is seeing every detail clear in his mind. But that, of course, isn't what creativity is like for Pullman, as we know. And his daring, of course, to make war on the Creator. But this daring lacks knowledge. He doesn't know what the one thing is that would make that rebellion possible. And maybe we shouldn't take the Cliffgast word for it, that it's just that one thing. Maybe we should think about some of the rest of what Lord Asriel has missed out on. But uh, we finally come back to the question of who this Asahatr could be, how the witches have not heard of him. Um, finally, Serafina points out that maybe it's not a him. Um, she suggests that they know as little as the young Cliffgast. And so she has a bit of a sense of humor about this too, perhaps. Her translation of the word Asahatr is God-destroyer, a kenning, if you like. But it's not quite exact. The epithet there would be more like a danger or a threat, not a destroyer. Um, we'll have to come back to this when we see more of what role the knife actually plays in the end. Because, of course, Asahatar is another name for the knife. We'll learn this in a little bit. The role of language and names comes up again here quite shortly with the watchers. So we'll come back to that too. But this is very similar, I think, to the two contrasting goals that the Egyptians had when they set out. On the one hand, vengeance, but on the other, and it predominated, to rescue the children. We see Rudiscati and Serafina Pecola representing the two sides of this adventure's purpose. Rudiscati, of course, insisting that maybe the witches themselves are Asaheter, and uh, she longs to kill those fiends from Bolvanger and all the Bolvangers and all the worlds. She fixates on this question, though she doesn't seem to actually want to know the answer to it, of why they do it, why they sacrifice children to their cruel God. She's, uh, she's unable to think through Serafina's answer, which is that they are afraid of dust. Um, which is a good answer. But then she wants to know about 
Will and Lyra and what they're up to serving her. How they tried to heal his wound and the holding spell didn't work. They mentioned that the herbs here might be less potent, but maybe it's just that it's too hot for blood moss to grow. She agrees that he's the same kind as Lord Asriel, that Seraphina herself has not dared to look in Will's eyes. Again, this chapter passes the time for us with stars setting and other stars rising, Lyra dreaming and lightning on the distant foothills of the mountains. Lyra's part was more than just guiding Will. And Serafina Pecola agrees with this too when Rudascati says it. She says it was far more, later on anyway. Her destiny to put an end to destiny. And there's a name that would make her meaningful to Mrs. Coulter and the Magisterium. They almost got it from the tortured witch, but Yambe Aka came to her in time, right? Death came to her again. Serafina supposes that Lyra herself might be Esaheter, the sleeping child. Sleeping, again, as she was on the balloon when Serafina was talking to Lee Scoresby about destiny and fate. And Rudascati takes this sort of literally again, imagining what an amazing queen of queens Lyra would have been if she were her daughter by Lord Asriel. But it isn't, of course, through violence and rebellion that this story is going to reach its conclusion. We get a hint of this in what happens next. They listen, they see not firelight, but something very different. They see all the witches asleep as if under a spell and a circle of angels gazing down at the sleeping children. And here's the naming thing comes back in. The witches have no word in their language for pilgrimage. But seeing this, Serafina Pecola understands the meaning of that word for the first time. How this changes the rest time for these pilgrims being here even briefly. And uh, Pan himself comes out, uh, is actually awake, while Lyra is actually asleep, it seems. He gazes around, unafraid, and she remembers it as if it were a dream. He seems to accept the regard of these beings as Lyra's do, and he goes back to sleep. Then we have the imagery of light passing through light, of this circle of radiance, and again, at the center of this circle, something that is far from clear and distinct leadership of the sort that we saw with Azrael, but nevertheless no less daring and, and noble uh, and just and truthful. Um, this is what the angels seem to see in the children. They grow as they get more distant. They go fast as shooting stars. Maybe these same angels uh, spoke to Mary Malone through the screen. Um, maybe they are the same kind as what Rudascati saw before, only greater. And again, she only saw them that way because she expected to see them so. They wonder about the senses of these angels, these beings of pure light, and um, can only wonder at what their experience of the world might be like. 
So the witches are capable of a kind of humility, but still, um, the dominant tone here is one of compassion for the watchers. Serafina thinks how much they must miss by not having bodies, rather than thinking of how much they might gain. And uh, I think that that must be Philip Pullman's own perspective on this matter. Um, when she snaps the twig of her pine branch and smells the resin of the needles, it recalls us to that test that Lyra performed at the house of the witch consul, proving that she was the child spoken of among the witches who would end destiny. And, um, of course, she, secretly enough, uh, overheard some of that destiny. We'll have to try to untangle that another time. I'll post a few of the links I was trying to use to get to the bottom of this um, word, Asaheter. The first part of it does seem to mean God, like as in uh, Asgard, Old Norse or Icelandic, that As word. The second part of it, Heter, does seem to mean something more like danger. And so only metaphorically or symbolically than destroyer. If the only thing that could endanger God, could also destroy him. I'm not sure. Uh, as for the pronunciation of it, the A-E ligature in uh, Icelandic and Norse is pronounced like an A sound. If it's uh, anything like the name Cadman, as in Cadman's hymn, one of the oldest uh, English poems that, that borrows that um, sound. Uh, so not like the Latin A-E, which is pronounced like an E sound, like a demon. Um, but it's just another one of the subtle uh, subtleties of, of Pullman's language here. Though he doesn't tell us much about the witch's own language, he, he does seem interested in these kinds of questions, in these intertextual allusions, in these bridges between worlds. We have to add the poem, The Waking of Angantyr. A word where, uh, uh, sorry, a poem where the word hetter does appear. Um, it's a poem about a cursed sword, tirving. Um, so possibly a inspiration for the subtle knife itself. Um, others have theorized it looks like that the subtle knife might be inspired by Michael's sword in Paradise Lost. Um, certainly possible too. Um, these just add to the suite of other works that are worth consulting uh, in our investigation of these books. So thanks again for listening.